This is the First Christian Church of Lubbock podcast, where we exist to share the gospel and edify the church through Bible-based teachings and content. I am your host, Scott Hall. On this episode, Pastor Paul will be discussing Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is taken from our noon Bible study that was hosted on September 9th, 2020. May God add his blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the understanding of his word. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil left him, and the angels came and attended to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we see at the beginning in verse 1 that Jesus is baptized. He is a human, God's son in the form of a human, fully identifies with sinners. Last week we preached and taught that Jesus was baptized in John's baptism not because he had any need to repent, but because he came to fully identify with those who need to repent. When Jesus emerges from the water, he receives the voice and confirmation from heaven. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit has descended on Jesus. Some say in the form of a dove, and other ways to read it is in the same way a dove would come. A little bit of a whirlwind. We'll know when we experience it. And then Jesus, full of the Spirit, receiving God's pleasure, baptized, that same Spirit leads Jesus to the desert for the purposes of being tested by the devil. And that's two things that need to be held in tension. Just like at the beginning of Job, when we studied that, my brother was pointing out to me, in all of his years in going to church, he had never considered the fact that the Lord, our Father, was on speaking terms with Satan. They would talk to each other. And you have a similar situation here that the Holy Spirit is leading Jesus Christ to the desert in order to be tempted by the devil, not led to the desert. And even though he was in the desert to do other things, the devil showed up and interfered. Now, the reason Jesus went to the desert was to be tempted. As I've written on our notes that we see two things in Scripture. One is that God does test his people 
but we also know God does not tempt his people. So God's responsible for testing or proving the validity of our conversion. Uh, We preached weeks ago about Jacob wrestling with God. God came in the form of a person. They wrestled all night. And I uh, taught from that scripture to make the point that Jacob didn't win. The point of this wrestling match was God with one hand claimed and chose and ordained Jacob to be saved, filling him with the spirit of God, sealing him in the blood of Christ. And then what God with his other hand comes and wrestles. Only a man owned by God could stand in the presence of God. In the same way, we see the two hands of God here. One is that he's going to take Jesus, his chosen, his son, into the desert. And then with his other hand, he's going to loosen the temporary restrictions on Satan so that Satan can do what he's always wanted to do, which is to come to as close to destroying Jesus as possible. If Satan was let off of his leash, each of us would have our flesh peeled off of our bones, and that would be it. But he's on a leash. He's restricted. And God temporarily lengthens the leash just an inch so that we can feel the roar of hell, so that we will turn from hell and cling to Christ. And in this case, God is testing Jesus without tempting Jesus, but God is testing Jesus by allowing the tempter a little bit more length, slack in his rope. So I've written God tests his people. He doesn't personally tempt us because God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt. However, the temptations of the devil are one way God will allow us to be tested. That sounds like semantics, but we see throughout scripture that God, for instance, is sovereign However, he is not to be blamed for sin. And the only answer to that solution is, is that he controls all things, but he himself will not dirty his hands with the sins of man. We'll flip real quick to Deuteronomy. We'll be in Deuteronomy a lot today, so you might want to put a piece of paper there. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 6 and 8 are quoted a lot here. And remember as we began this series that we pointed out that Matthew quotes the Old Testament. And so if you're looking for an easy book to study, just study Matthew. And when he quotes the Old Testament, turn there and read that scripture. But also back up, read read a little bit beforehand and a little bit after. And there's a whole well, uh, a whole uh, 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 mine full of gems and rubies for you to explore. But we'll look at uh, Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 5. This is God's word to his chosen people. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you would live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on an oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert for these 40 years? Why? Why? to humble you and to test you in order that to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, 
to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. And so we see this, we also see that in the life of Elijah, we see it in the life of Jesus Christ. Forty days, not forty years in this case, God takes his special portion into a proving ground to prove to all people, including the devil himself, that this is God's servant, Jesus Christ. Now we also know from the Old Testament, the two heads of the human race, first Adam and then uh, Israel, failed. They failed the test. It's one thing to take a test, it's another to pass the test. And that's always the, you know, the joke before you go take a blood test or a urine test, it's, you know, good luck, I hope you studied hard. You can fail. And we see God has chosen to make a covenant with a people who always fail every time. In fact, the only way a person doesn't fail is because God chooses to put his hand upon and within them, similar again to Jacob and God wrestling all night long. In this case, for the first time, God has provided in real time, in real history, his chosen person who on behalf of all the other people he's called will face the actual test and actually pass. There's no curve. There's no bonus question. There's no extra credit. Jesus of Nazareth would face the full testing of his character, of his resilience, of his called nature, the Messiah, the anointed one, and pass with flying colors, neither wavering nor fretting or falling. Jesus stands. So as we flip, hold on to Deuteronomy because we're going to be coming back and forth. I want to point out two goals here. You've got the goal of Jesus Christ and you've got the goal of Lucifer. Jesus's goal is to identify with sinners, to walk in perfect righteousness, to bear the sins of others, and provide a righteous covering for those whose sins are born on him. That's what he's here to do. That's his goal. And as I mentioned last week, I'd love for us all to commit to memory, Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's important to know why Jesus came. Now, tagged on to chapter 20, verse 28, is verse 27, when he practically says, uh, have the same attitude as me. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, first you need to know what he's all about, and then it's your op uh, obligation and invitation to conform to that type of lifestyle. That's similar to St. Paul in Philippians chapter 2. 6 through 11 is the great parabolic hymn of Jesus Christ, but it begins with, in verse 5, may each of us have the same attitude that Christ had, who, though he was in the same nature God, did not regard equality with God as something to exploit, but emptied himself and then so forth. So why did Jesus come? He came to serve and he came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why. That's his goal, 
to identify with sinners, to walk perfectly in righteousness, to bear the sins of others, and to provide a righteous covering for those whose sins he's bore. He takes your sins. If he takes your sins, he also gives you a Christmas present, his holy righteousness, his credit. You are reckoned with Christ's GPA. His test results are yours. That's why he's come. Now, I've also written a furthermore here. Furthermore, Jesus aligns with Scripture in both content and intent. The Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, and in Jesus' case, the 39 books of the Older Testament, the Hebrew Bible, are the written, holy will and purposes of God, trustworthy and true. We could talk about biblical authority at another time. I don't think we have to today because you're here. But the Bible itself is also the authority over Christ because it's true. And so Jesus, in human form, as the Word of God in human form, consistently submits himself and perfectly aligns with what is written. You hear him say all the time, it is written, or the Son of Man must. It's, the word must is essential, necessary. I must go to Jerusalem. I must be handed over to sinners. I must be rejected, and I must be crucified, and I must be raised from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, in accordance with Scripture. And so that's Jesus' goal, to do these things, and in doing so, to align perfectly with what has been written in the 39 books of the Bible up to that point. I think it's interesting that none of the Bible was written when Jesus was alive. We get the Old Testament, pauses, the New Testament waits, because the Son of Man is speaking for himself. The 39 books of the Old Testament are pointing forward in time to the Christ event. The 27 books of the New Testament are pointing backward to the Christ event, both of which are finding their full meaning in the Christ event, which is the word of God, Jesus Christ. But nothing Jesus did was of his own accord. It was all in accordance with what had been written and what will be written in the epistles, in the gospels, in the book of Acts, and in the book of Revelation. It's amazing. Only Jesus. Leave the devil out for a minute. Leave the cross out for a minute. And just pretend that you were told that there was a baby born who would obey every prophecy perfectly and by their nature, starting now. They would never misstep. Everything they said, everything they thought, everything they did would be in absolute perfect accordance and in line with scriptural authority. That'd be something to see. Y'all have seen the Truman Show? You know that show, Jim Carrey, where they film him and he's, he's practically a sitcom. They've got cameras hidden all over. He, everyone else is an actor but him. And it's a great show because he doesn't know he's being filmed and he's just a nice guy. Well, I would want to see Jesus Truman Show. Turn on the Jesus channel and see what he's doing today. Because whatever he's doing today is right. Whatever he's doing today is biblical. So the whole life of Christ is both true because he's Jesus, but it's also aligned with what had been written. Now, Satan's goal is different than Jesus's, obviously. And Satan's goal is to disrupt the work of Jesus and the work of the Father by, number one, 
temptation in three ways, as we'll discuss today. And number two, direct opposition. As we discussed in the book of Revelation, what we generally see happen in the attacks on the church is Lucifer generally comes with temptation and he tries to get as much mileage out of temptation as he can get. Frankly and sadly, for most American Christians, that's all he needs. When temptation quits working, he then turns to direct opposition. This is persecution. This is when those who cannot be swayed by the temptations of the devil must be attacked in their person and in their property. That's a far you know, distance from where the current American church is, but I would be prepared as we experience revival in our country across the churches to also experience and be prepared for a world that not only hates the church, but now reveals that it actually hates Jesus. Up to this point in American history, people have a disagreement on doctrine, but most people, in a sense, at least will say they revere God or they've got no problem with God. And up to this point, most people have no problem with Jesus. But now we're getting to the point that if I bring up Jesus, people turn the dial. The hatred and growing animosity toward Jesus Christ as the Savior and against his type of fruitfulness is only seeming to increase. So we could be living in a season soon where for being a fruitful Christian will actually attract uh, a deep level of hatred. And as we've said before, it's okay for people to hate us because of who Jesus is. It is not okay for people to hate Jesus because of who we are. And so Satan's, that's his goal, is to disrupt the work of Christ in temptation and then direct op uh, opposition. And so to, today we see the three temptations. Obviously, we just read it. They don't work. And so, and so the Lucifer um, slinks away to darkness, biding his time. And he'll come through in different ways, but his primary way is through Judas, Caiaphas, Pilate, Barabbas, the crowd, Calvary. He's waiting for Calvary three years from this day. Temptation number one. Temptation number one is the devil is encouraging Jesus to take charge to meet his own needs. And his strategy is to appeal to the human appetite. Verse 2, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. Now notice, the reason he's in the desert is to be tempted, and the temptations do not come until he's hungry. He's already hungry, he's already been out there for 40 days, and then the temptations start. The tempter came to Jesus and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Satan is not quoting scripture. Satan is appealing to Jesus being hungry. Human need. That's the easiest temptation because most of us never fast. Uh, we, uh, especially when we're first converted, you know, we have a saying, we never, you know, say it out loud, but it's my saying in life is no pain, no pain. Path of least resistance. If it's hard, don't do it. If it's uncomfortable, fix it or run from it. 
Never consider discomfort God's will for your life. That's what the modern mind thinks. We're soft. We're pushovers. We're Christians until we don't get our way, and then we throw a fit. The devil knows that about us. Hunger can get us going, uh, not getting something we think we deserve, losing something we've had. Go through that, see how much of a Christian you are. Now, I hope you're surprised at how much God has invested in you, and you're able to face difficulty. You're able to face disappointment, discouragement. But the devil's first temptation on Jesus, I would be ready as a Christian to experience the same temptation and ask the question, how does the devil get me to get off course and follow him just through appealing to my human needs? And the temptation is to Jesus, take charge to meet your needs. So Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, and we just read it. Deuteronomy 8, where the people are being tested in the desert, and they're being tested first by being humbled. God's uh, causing us to hunger and then feeds us with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. So God leads his people in situations in life to cause us to be discomforted, and God will come in and feed us. God will supply us what we need. And he'll supply us what we need in the form of something we've never heard of. That doesn't mean all of a sudden God gives you $100 to United Market and you're good and you go eat, though that would be nice. So Jesus is referring to something deeper, something stronger, and that is from Deuteronomy 8, God causes us to be hungry and then feeds us with the bread of heaven to teach us. Both the hunger and the provision are designed to prove that we're truly saved and to teach us, to grow us. If your life's appetite is met by you and you only, you are not God's people. That's the test. If your life's appetite is met by you and you only, you are not God's people. And so Jesus revealed he is reliant on the Father. Now, how easy would it have been for Jesus to not go hungry those 40 days? If the goal, if the goal is just to be somewhere for 40 days... I would be making bread into sirloin steak and pomegranates and anything. Panda Express. Oh, Panda Express. I mean, if, if the goal is just to be somewhere, why hurt? Why suffer? If that's the goal, just to be somewhere. But the goal isn't just to be somewhere, at least in this story. The goal is to be tempted. And so Jesus doesn't cheat. Jesus chooses every day to grow hungry and grow hungry and grow hungry. Later in uh, his ministry, we see in John chapter 4, my, I have food that you don't, do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me 
the reliance of Jesus on God to give him nourishment and give him purpose and energy, or as the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread, Jesus prayed it without any hypocrisy. Reliant on God. This does not mean that for the rest of his life, Jesus never ate or never tried or never worked, never strove, strived, I don't know the word, but he didn't, he didn't just sit around. But it also means that Jesus was not confused. And that's a temptation for all of us to look at today. If your whole life is a story of how you have needs and you met those needs, you are not God's child. But if your story includes, I've had needs and I've worked hard, and by the mysteries of God, he has given me my daily bread. And it's hard to teach, it's hard to describe, but I am here not just by my life's choices, but by grace. You are a child of God. Nobody could call Jesus negligent or lazy but he still chose to be reliant on God. And so the question we all have to ask ourselves is today, are we, do we have an appetite for holy manna, for God's provision, or do we ruin our appetite with junk food? Do we know how to be still? Do we know how to fast? Do we know how to wait? Do we know how to have an uncomfortable day? Or in the words of Jesus, do we know how to be poor in spirit? Just like the, the truth of the gospel that says, if you confess that you're guilty, your sins are gone. You're not guilty anymore. But if you convince yourself you're not that bad and you act like you're not guilty, your guilt remains. So we go to God and say, I'm poor in spirit. Everything I have of eternal worth you've given to me and I'm starving now. I'm... I'm I am physically nourished, but my soul is as dry as a potato chip. If we go to God like that, it says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Watch out. He feeds those who want him to do the feeding. Temptation number one was Jesus Christ to use his power to meet every appetite he has. And he was tested to be reliant on God. Temptation number two was that, we are, uh, was that he was to use his power or miracles to attract a large following by summoning or manipulating God. And so in order to do this, the devil quotes scripture. So notice the first time he doesn't quote scripture, now he's quoting scripture. And he says to Jesus, the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, God will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So the logic here is both Satan and Jesus know these things, I've written that Jesus uh, was needed to stay alive for his redemptive work. Remember, he came to identify with sinners, walk in righteousness, bear the sins of his people, and to offer his righteousness to those who come in faith. So he needs to be alive. Remember the story when Jesus is sleeping on the boat? Well, one of the reasons we know Jesus says, don't worry, we're not going to die. 
We're going to go to Jerusalem and die. Jesus knew, I mean, the, the whole life of Jesus wasn't good news for him, but he was not fearful of dying on a boat because he knew he wouldn't die on the boat. This is not how it goes down, friends. I must go to Jerusalem. I've to, I thought I told you this. Did I not make this clear that I'm going to lay down my life and take it up again? I'm not dying on the boat in the same way. Jesus could have leveraged that knowledge. He can't die. And so I've also written, so if he could put his life in constant peril, then the father would have to intervene miraculously, and this would both keep Jesus alive and add credibility to his life and his work, right? Wrong. You know, if, if Jesus walked in front of a bus, well, first off, he's breaking scripture because that's not God's will for his life. But just hypothetically, if he walked in front of the bus, he got hit by the bus, he'd come back alive. Or the bus would split in two and go around him. Or it'd go right through him. Anything. But he's not going to die. Wouldn't you think, you know, just a guy walking around like Mr. Magoo, always getting into trouble, always making it. He's like a cartoon character. And everybody said, wow, look at this guy. He can't be killed. He's Rasputin. You know, you can't, can't get this guy down. You would think maybe that would be a temptation in order to prove the existence of God. I've written here in verse 91, uh, from Psalm 91, that this is a misuse of that psalm. What, which is about humbly standing your ground, trusting that God will preserve you, this is not about being reckless in order to wow a crowd. You who dwell in the shelter of the Lord, who abideth in his tent... Though the arrows would fly by day or the pestilence by night, though a thousand would fall at your right hand, this shall not come near you. This isn't somebody looking for trouble. This is somebody in trouble. And what you see often by the devil is that he actually knows more scripture than most preachers. One of the greatest tools and instruments of the devil is a preacher in the pulpit. He knows scripture, and he doesn't honor the intent. So the use of scripture, quoting scripture, is not something outside of the devil's purview. In fact, that's what he did with Adam and Eve. He came at them with the temptation of, aren't you hungry? Don't you want to eat that fruit? Wouldn't that be neat? Well, God said, I know what God says. I've heard he's not altogether clear. Did he really say? Because sometimes he says this to one person and something else to something else. So the devil started having a Bible study. As I've heard it said, we have to be careful because sometimes Bible study is just a collection of ignorance. Well, I think it means this. Well, I think it means this. Well, be careful. Does it not mean something to the Holy Spirit? I'm not against multiple interpretations, but where we are as a country has swung the other direction where any interpretation must be right. It's not true. Otherwise, we're saying the devil can be right. So he misuses Psalm 91. He actually quotes scripture, though, so give him points for that. 
but he misquotes it. I've heard Paul Washer say, uh, somebody said, uh, judge, lest, judge not lest you be judged. And he said, twist not scripture lest you be like the devil. Because that's actually not what it says if we go study the teachings on the authority of the church to actually invoke judgment to test a tree by its fruit. And I've also heard it uh, said on the next one, if you bow down and worship me, all this will be yours, that that should be inspiring until you know who said it. So he's using Psalm 91 to, to get Jesus to put the Lord our God to the test. And so Jesus recalls Deuteronomy 6. Now we're just going to do a quick Bible study for fun. Turn to Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. And what Matthew is arguing is the majority of Deuteronomy itself is God has called a people, summoned a people, chosen a people, kept a people, instructed a people, promised things to a people, and Deuteronomy is his final statements to prove and test the quality of the work of God in these people, that they can, stand, they can handle it. So verse, chapter 6, verse 16, we'll back up just a little bit. Verse 13, we'll read this again in a moment. But fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you. And he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. Well, if you're going through your family's history, you would want to know, well, what happened at Massa? There's a story. Don't you like stories? You know, before you walk into a family reunion, mom has to say, now don't tell Cousin Dale about Cousin Jim. Remember what happened last time? And I'm new to the family. What happened last time? Let's call this meeting to order. I want to know. Give me the deets, you know. Well, let's see what, hap what happened at Massa. If you'll turn with, to Exodus chapter 17, we have the event in writing. If you remember, Exodus means exit. These are when the people have been free from Egypt, and they're having to learn to walk under the authority of God. They learn quickly that freedom is not absolute. But freedom is restrictions under God's authority. I'm going to start with verse 1 just for a minute. The whole, this is Exodus 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. I'm sure that's not all they said. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? So there's the word. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why do you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. That's what Bob Dylan said. The Lord answered Moses, 
walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called this place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, here's the test, is the Lord among us or not? That's the sin. To put the Lord our God to the test is to demand that God prove whether or not he's with us or not. So that's, that's the essence of Bible study. Jesus quotes it here. Go back to what he's quoting. See if there's any clues. You can be like Sherlock or Watson. Then you go to the next spot. And then you go back to Jesus. So Jesus, we're taking all the way back from Exodus 17, 7, to test the Lord our God is to require proof that he's present and with us or not. And Jesus calls that a sin. So I've written here on our notes that putting the Lord your God to the test is to require him to prove his existence and presence among us. Jesus, nor his true followers or crowd, needs to constantly see God in action in order to trust him. Rather, we are able to place our faith in the Lord on the basis of truth, the gospel, and his written and explicit word, one of them being, I will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13. Have you ever just felt bad? You felt bad about weak, about your place in the gospel, just, don't, just having a bad day. The reason we still believe is because God has made a promise. The reason we should believe, for instance, that God has a church, will have a church, and will keep hold of his church is because Jesus has said it. We see it in Isaiah chapter 43, though you pass through the waters, they will not sweep you away. Though you pass through the fires, they will not consume you. I've designed them to clean you, not kill you. Uh, Jesus didn't come here to potentially have a church. He came here to have a church. We know Romans 8, most, a lot of people's favorite scripture, Romans 8, 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything in all creation, present, past, has the power to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Similar to what Jesus says to Thomas, blessed are you for seeing and believing, but blessed more are the people who do not have to see in order to believe. The point is, is what we'll see in the life of Jesus Christ is that there will be many crowds. And as soon as Jesus starts speaking truth, the crowds thin. The crowds gather in the presence of feeding of the 5,000, but as soon as Jesus says, I am the bread of life, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, the crowds shrink. Who's the church? It's not just those who are wowed by miracles. Any goat is wowed by a miracle. When the circus comes to town, you'll get all sorts of people. But the church are the people who hear the voice of their shepherd, and they come.
the point is, the temptation Jesus had here was to begin to put himself in peril by proving God's existence by the way God kept protecting his own son. Not only is that unbiblical and a sin, but what that would do is create a bunch of false conversions of people who were actually not aligned with truth. They were just people who wanted to come to a church full of fiddlers and circuses. That's why we know that faith is not based on evidence. Jesus Christ could show up in this room resurrected, and those who love the truth and love him would cling to him. But there would still be, God forbid in this room, a cynic. Our eyes were playing tricks on us. Jesus appeared to many who did not believe. Jesus had many come to him and say, I will follow you to the ends of the earth. And Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds have nests. The road's tough, and I can see your heart. You won't make it. Rich young ruler, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus told him, forsake everything in your life and come and follow me. No, I won't do it. Jesus could have done 12 handstands and 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 levitated in the air, and that guy wouldn't have followed him, but maybe a day. The temptation of Jesus in this case also reveals the temptation of us to make faith about miracles, about wow factors, and not about truth. The church of Jesus are the people who are capable of hearing the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, even the parts that offend us and say, well, that's the way it is. And then we follow. The third temptation of Jesus was the devil trying to get him to accomplish his goal by amending the plan to compromise. And the strategy, the first strategy was to appeal to Jesus's human needs. The second strategy was to quote scripture And the third strategy is to preach. The devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. So it's a sermon. It's a preacher saying, hopefully we're saying, can you not see Christ crucified in the word? In the eyes of your heart, can you see him on the cross? Can you see him walking freely out of the tomb? Can you see him returning with glory? Can you see him gathering his church in the gates of paradise open to us as if we were Jesus and have a right to be there? Can you see? The devil took him up and preached. Can you see? Can you see? Can you see? He preached to him, showed them all the splendor of the world, and he says, I will give you all of this if you bow down and worship me. He tried to inspire Jesus to accomplish his goal. That's why Jesus came. He came for the world. And the devil says, ah, the world's great. You and I agree on that. Of course, Jesus was viewing it as the world redeemed from sin. The devil was viewing it as the world as it is. And he says, you know, we found a common 
thing. Let's talk. I've written here that Jesus could have what he came for, which what he came for was altogether right and good. And he could have it faster and with less pain if he was willing to include Satan. Worship doesn't have to necessarily mean allegiance. It just means to admire. You don't have to turn your back on the Father. You can just also look at me and say, I'm not all that bad. I have some redeemable qualities. I've written here that Satan was either, number one, seeking absolution for his treason. I'm on your side now, Jesus. Put in a good word for the Father. Forgive me. He was either seeking absolution for his treason, treason, which I think is less likely, or, number two, he was still full of hateful pride that he lusted after being worshipped. And the devil's a a 15-year-old teenager male with one thing on his mind. He's, uh, he's, He's in the presence of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the King of glory, and telling Jesus, please admire me. You see how fallen he is? He is so gone that he is not even able to stand and admire Jesus. So he preaches, and then Jesus Christ, our Savior, quotes Deuteronomy 6. And Deuteronomy 6 actually says something a little different than Matthew's version of it. Piqued my interest. Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, we've already read it. It says, fear the Lord your God. Yahweh is Lord in all caps. Fear Yahweh your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Fear the Lord your God, which is, in Matthew's understanding, the basis of worship. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus, for the third time, and not for the last time, stands in the knowledge of and conforming his life to Scripture. There is Nothing embarrassing to Jesus in the Bible. St. Paul writes in First Romans 1, 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And Jesus says, I am not ashamed of the scripture. It's good, all of it. It's his favorite thing. What do you want to, what do you want to talk about in here? It's all good. There's not a thing in there. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, it's awesome. The flood, Yes. The stuff that we're like, oh, man, I cannot believe this. Jesus like, oh, I can't. I was there. Two sides to every story. You don't know God's side to that story. It was righteous and good and true. There's nothing in the word of God that Jesus is ashamed of, and he loves to preach. And in this word, he's saying, the only fear I'm going to have is of God. Um. In fact, I've written one more verse here I'll read to you. You can flip there if you want about the life of Jesus. Isaiah 11, it's about the root of Jesse. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Holy Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, 
in verse 3, and this man will delight in the fear of the Lord. Jesus Christ, whatever the fear of the Lord means is something to do with the way Jesus reveres the Father. It's a temptation right now to fear anything but God. We fear a virus. We fear loss of job. We fear who's going to be in the White House next. We fear people's opinions about us. We fear about being offensive or offended. We fear all sorts of stuff. And Jesus was motivated by one primary perspective. I want my father to be happy with me. Whoever's disapproval will crush you the most is your Lord. Christ's only focus in that regard is the eye of his own father, Yahweh. So Jesus quotes scripture to this person who's been preaching at him, this Lucifer, whose friends a better preacher than any preacher you've ever heard. Skilled and talented and can, he's a wordsmith. He can, he can mold phrases and hearts and minds. He is wily and crafty and wise and smart and able. If you are swayed by a good sounding sermon and not by the content of scripture, the devil knows it and he will use it. He's good. You cannot stand against him. But Christ can. And the word of God can. And that's the way the church knows the difference between right and wrong. In the words of Matt Chandler in Dallas, if you do not trust in the authority of Scripture, you'll be a slave to whatever sounds right. No Scripture And so Jesus Christ faces these three temptations. And I've written them here. He was proven. Adam failed. Israel failed. Everyone failed. Jesus was proven. In the pressurized kiln of God's righteous judgment and testing, he let loose even the devil to test him, and Jesus stood under it. Number one, he was proven to be reliant upon God for his life. Number two, he was trusting in God's promises and would only use God's promises as the means to gather in true believers. Number three, he was unwavering in his commitment to the goal and the path forward, which would include the cup of God's wrath in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, not my will be done, but thine. The goal, the way, the path, all of it, Christ was committed. He wouldn't cheat. He wouldn't cut corners. He wouldn't say, do you know whose son I am? Do you know who my daddy is? No. He wasn't a trust fund baby. He was the righteous man. I also love the fact that Jesus, in verse 10, says, away from me, Satan. Your version might say, be gone, Satan. And what happened? The only reason Satan had Jesus' attention was because 
both the Father and the Son sovereignly allowed it to happen. It's unbelievable that the devil still thinks he can win or deflect or cause frustration to God. His own existence is 100% reliant upon God allowing him to be alive. Just like the demons would cry out to Jesus, please don't cast us back to the abyss. The devil who was tempting Jesus was 100% reliant upon Jesus allowing the temptation to continue. Mercy, power, grace. Jesus stood up under it. And we also see that in that moment, after these 40 days, these three temptations, the devil's gone, the angels come, and they attend to him. They worship him. They love him. So in today's lesson, as we conclude, the Bible, especially the Gospels, are 100% about Jesus. And it's always in comparison to our failure. The Bible goes into great detail to tar and feather all of the people except for one person, Jesus. These were the temptations Jesus stood up against. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. But it also shows some of the temptations we might face. And it also shows the means by which he has a church. So as we go through these things, I want you to be thinking about your position in Christ. Is your position in Christ because you have begun and have learned how to trust God for your daily bread? Is your position in Christ include that you believe in Jesus Christ, not just because of how amazing he is, but because of everything he says and does is the written truth. The truth, meaning it's the reality of the way things are. That there really is sin. There really is heaven. There really is hell. There really is judgment and resurrection. Do you believe that? Jesus did not come here to put on a circus. And number three, do you believe like Jesus Christ that God has called you to an uncompromising life? There's non-essential things we can figure out as we go, you know, the color of the carpet at church, but uncompromising in the truth that God has a purpose and plan for your life. And there are times when you have got to be willing to do the right thing, which is normally the hard thing, that you've got to have a backbone, that you've got to be willing to stand in Christ and for the truth even when the whole world has gone chaotic. These are the same temptations we face today. If you last underneath them, and I pray we all do, what's waiting for us is not only a crown of glory, but on the way there, direct opposition from the evil one. No one would sign up for this just for grins, just for fun. But the path forward leads us to a, a gumption, a courage to say, I am blessed to be able to suffer with my Christ. I am considered worthy of bearing my cross. I am called to union with Christ in every way, including the path that he has forged to Calvary. As we can uh, close today, I'd like us to close with a hymn, uh, 618. Brittany, can you come help me? 618, which is, uh, what was this originally called? The, the How Firm a Foundation? 
the exceedingly grace, uh, something, excellent promises of God. This is about the work of God through the word of God for the people of God. If you're able to rise, you can.